Hello, my name is Sebastian Castro-Nicolescu, and I will be having a conversation with Sophie Cadel for the New York City Transoral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is August 6, 2018, and this is being recorded at the New York Public Library offices in Midtown Manhattan. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Sebastian. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for inviting me um, to have a conversation with you today. Yeah, of course. Um, so to get started, uh, let's just um, begin with uh, where are you from and what was it like growing up? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I was born in the Dominican Republic, um, and I was raised in Washington Heights, New York. I, was, um, I came to the United States about six months old, six, seven months old, mm -hmm. and I was raised by my parental grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, from a young age, I didn't have much um, connection with my biological mother, mm -hmm. um, so that, for that reason, I was raised with my father's side of the family here in, in the U.S., mm -hmm. and my remainder um, siblings and my mother um, stayed in the Dominican Republic um, to live and currently still live there. Okay. Um, growing up, um, I remember having a lot of um, mind-blowing moments, I would say, um, for lack of another word. Um, just growing up and being um, able to be a child and somehow grow up in a fast-paced environment where you're, you're still a child, but you're doing um, grown folks stuff um like taking care of grandma um doing some shorts around the house taking more initiative about um you know what i wanted to want what i wanted to do in school and um just that that aspect you know just being grown in that aspect of my life um i don't know i, I had a lot of child moments that were um that, that i could share that were great and, and that were not so great um so I don't know where where you want to take the conversation yeah. from there. <laughs> um, I guess just to like go from the really like beginning, like uh, do you know what prompted the move from the DR to here? Um, a lot of um, the things that I want that happened, sorry, that happened during my childhood um, are still kind of a blur to me. Um, still are you know some family secrets mm -hmm. to sort of say. Um, I did grow up with a. Dominican and Catholic background. Um, so my family is very instilled in like, you know, what happens in the family, stays in the family, and um, certain things about before you were here are things that you should know. Basically, that's how I was raised. Um, so I was still left with, you know, no answers of why I came to live with my um parents or grandmother and my father's side of the family and why did they have so much connection with my biological mother and stuff like that. Um, to this day, um, on this day, um, as we speak, I, I have a connection. I have built a connection with my biological grandmother who now lives in Spain. Um, and I um, reestablished that connection with her in 2010 when I went back to Dominican Republic for a brief trip. So, um, it still hasn't been a conversation that has been um, brought up to have, um, but I pretty, I'm pretty sure that had to do with 
um, you know, citizenship and immigration issues and just like, you know, what, what would be more beneficial for my life in the long run, um, to sort of speak, because um, a lot of people's dream who live in Dominican Republic is to come to the United States, to come to New York and have the American quote-unquote dream. Um, so maybe to start gathering some kind of like memories and moments, uh, do you have a kind of very first impactful memory? Um, <laughs> I guess the most impactful memory that I will have, um, is just a bond that I had, that I built with my grandmother mm-hmm. and that I still have, um, to this day, uh, regardless of where it stands now, um, I still have that bond towards her, that you know, that love, that, you know, that person who was, you know, my mother figure, my father figure, you know, and um, my grandparent um, symbol. She was both my grandmother and my grand- my grandfather because I didn't have a grandfather in neither on both sides of the family, neither on my grandmother's side, I mean, on my mother's side or my father's side. Um, and she was the, my main, you know, guardian, my main caretaker. Because my father, when I, while I was growing up, from what I remember, he was traveling a lot over um, overseas and um, state to state, you know, doing um, work, um, construction work and stuff like that, from what I remember, from what I was told. Um, so my grandmother, she used to come to all my parent-teachers conference and my graduations. She made sure that I had everything I needed for, to start school, um, to make sure that I um, achieved and um, succeeded in school. and. Um, that I was enrolled in after school programs, that I was in extracurricular activities, and that I was just, you know, um, supported as a child that, you know, that had love and that um, that felt um, love and cared for. So I think my grandmother always showed me that. Um, unfortunately, in 2011, um, things weren't going so well in the household, um, both for my, my gender identity and because of just, you know, um, youthful... Um, mistakes or youthful paths that I wanted to take and that my grandmother didn't agree with. And it was just becoming a tour in her life to be taking care of my father's for, um, well, three children at that time. And um, still, you know, providing for my father and his kids and not being able to um, manage her life and, and her retirement and what she wanted to do to, you know, to live the rest of her life. So I understood her in that perspective. I just um, was very hurt when she... Um, made me leave home and um you know and then from there just like the the trust and the the love and bond that i have for my family wasn't the same and because of the all the experiences that i went through because of the things that i know that i went through while growing up that um a child shouldn't have gone through although they made me a stronger person um today so i cherish the experiences but i don't um cherish the the bond and the love that was broken if that makes any sense <laughs> yeah, I can totally understand that. Um, so what was it like kind of early on growing up in Washington Heights? What was the neighborhood you were in like? Mm-hmm. like? Washington Heights. It's, Washington Heights is a very um, Dominican um, culture instilled in it. Um, it's, it's like um, the transition from Spanish Harlem to um, East Harlem, mm-hmm. then Upper West Side, and then Washington Heights, which is like all Dominican Spanish, and and then it transitions to Inwood and Riverdale when it's a little bit more suburb and a little bit more conservative. So it's a very um, 
sticky neighborhood to navigate. Um, if you're not from the neighborhood, you won't understand it. You will feel out of place. Uh, but growing up, that was my um, that was my home. That was where I felt comfortable. It was where I grew up. It was it was where I nurtured, and I did everything in the same five to ten block radius every single day growing up. Um, my school was in 182nd and St. Nicholas, and my after school was in 183rd and Audubon, and home was in 180th and Broadway. So growing up, that was my transition until, um, until I started um, high school, and then I started working at American Eagle, which I got an opportunity to get out of the neighborhood and come work out in 34th Street, Penn Station. Um, and I was going to school in 84th Street, um, at Louis D. Brandeis High School. Um, so that, I, but that wasn't until like 20, 2010, 2011, which I didn't have the experience to get out of Washington Heights and get out of the instilled culture and stigma from the neighborhood and stuff like that. But it wasn't, it wasn't bad. Um, it was just very fat, fast paced um, growing up for, um, for a child my age who didn't have a lot of supervision, who didn't have, um, I had places to go during the day that I was expected to go, or if not, I would have been in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, but not having the the parent who was um, knowledgeable or experienced in navigating the neighborhood to give the child full experience of what the neighborhood and, and, and the community is, and instead of what just what the family knows, if that makes any sense. So it wasn't. It wasn't really much exposure, but school and after school and then home mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. And so how did you learn to navigate yourself like through the neighborhood, not having a kind of like person to lead you through it? Um, so in when I turned 14, 15, I'm not sure what year that was in, but pretty much like 2009, 2010. Um, I got introduced to the LGBT underground community, quote unquote, um, which is like the ballroom um, community. It's the um, house parties um, that they used to throw in um, either in Washington Heights, Harlem area, or in the Bronx always. And they were um, called homo bashes, mm-hmm. which is like this um, underground queer party that they would throw on Saturdays and Sundays on like holidays um, for queer youth who are either homeless, who, who don't, um, who are not of age to go clubbing mm-hmm. and who just wants a sense of community with people that they um, want to party with. It's a lot of, uh, it was a lot of drugs and alcohol and um, ungodly things, <laughs> just to say um, the least. Um, but it was the experience that they counted, and it was just the connections that and the the bonds and the friendships that we build. It was like making our own family. So that's how I got introduced to um, the outside New York City um, never sleeps world mm. um, around fifteen and sixteen by my brother, who my biological brother, who is also um, into LGBT um, life and who is engaged at the moment. Oh, wow. So. Kudos to him. Um, So my brother introduced me to a couple of friends who were part of this um, underground world. And we used to sneak out um, at night 
from our um, grandmother's home and used to go, you know, party. Um, it was the parties used to start around 10 and, and around 4 or 5 in the morning. My grandmother used to work late nights, so we'll take the late nights and we'll go out and party and then be home by the time before she gets home. You know, some it worked for a while until she caught up with us and then it was more like, well, are we just going to get in trouble and just go? Because we were like, we can't miss a party because it was that... Um, it meant that much to us. It meant, it meant more just like, oh my God, we're in an environment where people understand us, where um, I can just be free. I can just be myself and no one is here controlling me and like um, judging me or um, just putting me down. So it was something that we look forward to every weekend if there was a party. And then when, when there wasn't, it was just kind of like, oh, what are, what are we going to do? Like oh my god there's no party are we gonna throw a party <laughs> um so it became that but um and out of that i built a lot of friendships that, that lasted a while until i became homeless and the ending i mean the summer of 2011. and so how did you first find out about these parties in this community um i was you know it's crazy at this point i don't even remember <laughs> but i'm pretty the connections made through my brother my brother was inside was wasn't gonna say inside but it was part of the, the underground community for a while um he was more advanced than i was um to give a little bit of background my brother my brother used to live with my grandmother but also um who also has a biological mother who lives in new york city in brooklyn so whenever things weren't going well in the household where i used to live with my grandmother with um that was essentially my father's household mm-hmm. um they will go back um my brother and my sister who are who have the same mother mm-hmm. will go back to their mother and just you know cool off for a little bit and we'll have to deal with um the older shenanigans that's going on in my grandma's house but mm-hmm. since that's not my biological mother i didn't have that much of a relationship to do certain things that they had to that they were that they had advantage to do like, you know, just, okay, I'll leave, bye, see y'all later. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't have those opportunities because I just had one household that I knew of, which was my grandmother's home. So it wasn't no cooling off. It was just kind of just, like, dealing with it and being the essential secondary caretaker of the home um, for my grandmother because she is um, of background. Um, she has, like, bipolar disorder, um, depression. She has a lot of, like, um, just, like, um, mental health issues that weren't um i guess taken care of when they should have and now they're um just kind of taking a a toll of her life and um she really needed someone there to help her manage her taking medication and just being supportive for helping her through like the daily um the the needs of the household because she takes care of all of us that she needed like a secondary person you know to help her and um i felt like i provided that for her Mm -hmm. while i was there um, but yeah, my brother introduced me to those parties and then, um, Grindr expanded those doors. You meet other people who were, um, common and going to the parties or common with other people and then you will get, and then everything just became a domino effect. You get introduced to more people, you get introduced to more outings and more gatherings and more, um, more places. Um, then when I became homeless um, through those networks, I was introduced to the organizations that um, I was a part of now. Mm-hmm. I see. So um, when did you have to start 
taking care of your grandmother in that way. Um, you mentioned that it was pretty young that you had to start doing that. Yeah, um, from what I remember, my grandmother always um, showed some signs of mental health issues, but you know, at a young age, when you're like six, seven, you're in the first, second, and third grade, you're not really paying attention to those things, or if you are, you're, you don't have the words to describe or to understand what those issues are. Um, but you you see the way that a person treats you from a day to another, and you 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 grabs onto those things, especially as a child. You're like a sponge; you absorb everything. Um, and then I started having issues with my father, and just like um, just me personally, I was acting out, but it was acting out um, in the sense of like I'm seeking some type of attention that I don't know what it is, but it's just a reflection of what you're giving me. Um, through my whole childhood, I was um, placed in like um, counseling in school, and um, I had a, um, a psychotherapist growing up. Um, so I just like I've always been like placed in these places to talk about things that I don't know why I'm placed there as a child. Mm-hmm. And then when I come home, it's like you don't have a problem. There's something wrong with you, but then there is, and it was just kind of like a confusion of like. They think that because of their problems, I have problems. That was like my family's understanding of mental health because mm-hmm. they come from this culture of like, we don't talk about our problems. We don't sit down and conversate about what you're feeling and why you're feeling this way. So it was like, well, this person is here to help you because I feel like you have an issue, but I don't feel like you have an issue. There's no issue with you. Like, you're just acting out. Mm-hmm. So it's like, but why are you sending me here? So it's just like, um, growing up, that was my understanding of why I was seeing these people. Um, then um, once I started getting older, um, more family secrets, um, I started to understand more. Um, I started to just kind of like, you know, be, I was put in these environments where I would just absorb. And I'm like, okay, now I know what this is, I know what this is, and I know what this is. And now... Um, there's no going back. My family didn't understand the perspective of me not being able to unsee things. And it's just like, I'm going to react the way that I react. As just a human person reacts when they see something that doesn't make sense to them. Um, so I started, you know, voicing those things. Um, I started shielding my grandmother more from like my family who I seen that they were just taking like a lot of advantage of her because of her, you know, mental health situation or, Sometimes they wouldn't take advantage of her. They would just um, pity her because of the way that she, you know, managed her life. And it was just like, well, you guys all understand her situations and all making it more difficult for her to function in her disease. Um, so I was essentially just kind of like, kind of like her protector, mm. then her like, her go-to person, and then the secondary caretaker of the of the apartment just like had to do you know be be on top of things that she would essentially be on top of but because of her disease she wouldn't and she expected other people to take initiative and do things because they live in the household it's just just like it's just the way that her disease worked with her like she it was certain things that I didn't need her to tell me that I know that needed to get done if not she was in a flip and showed the other side of her that she wouldn't initially show if people just showed her a little bit of support. Mm. And I provided that for her because I understood her disease as I grew older and older. Um, and I still do, and I still feel, 
I still, I guess, I wouldn't say sympathize, but I empathize for her in the situation that she's in now. But I told her that once I left, that that was the situation she was going to be in. And, and in fact, she is now. Um, so I was her secondary caretaker in that, in that sense. I will accompany her with, to her um, mental health appointments. You know, I will get her um, medication at the pharmacy, bring it back to the home, um, make sure that she had it in a place where she remembered where, where it's at, where her medication were organized. She didn't have excessive bottles and stuff like that. Um, and, she will, and then she will also show the same support that I show her back the same way. But as soon as something will go wrong, I will be the initially person to blame, mm-hmm. even though I had nothing to do with it. So a lot of that took a toll in like myself and my mental health and what I was absorbing from the environment with my family and stuff like that. So when I started to rebel, you know, going out to parties and meeting more people and just kind of like being more of myself. I'm, I'm developing and growing as a person and they didn't quite understand that. And I kind of like put it in a perspective of like, well, I'm still me. I'm just changing internally and I'm expressing and like my outer, my outer appearance is like, it's an expression of what I'm feeling inside. Um, but it still doesn't change the love that I have for you. It still doesn't change my goals. It still doesn't change the life that I'm going to live. Um, so they kind of didn't understand that. And it's just kind of like um, they wanted some type of instant gratification of, of what my actions were, what my intentions were with my gender expression and stuff like that. Um, so around 20, um, the beginning of 2011, no, so 2010, around my birthday, I, around November November something, I started dating this um, young other this other young person. At the time, I was sixteen. The person was nineteen, mm-hmm. and I met those. I met that person through a connection of um, the underground world, and a lot of people in the underground world knew the person, um, but didn't but didn't tell me all of the things there. I'm gonna get to in a second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that really kind of like made my life go downfall. So that was kind of like he was one of the major impacts in my life at that moment. So in 20, 2011, I started dating this person. I was very instilled in the uh, underground world. Just wanted to go to these parties. I wanted to feel accepted. I just wanted to be free. I just wanted to do me. Um, I was working in American Eagle. I had a very good job. Um, I was still in high school. I wasn't going as consistently as I should have been, um, but I had transitioned from an ordinary high school to an um, alternative high school, which gets you more credits per year. You get to graduate earlier if you um, complete all your credits. Um, initially, all of that was going great because that's the plan that I put in my head and that I was following that, you know, I'm. I'm committed to this new relationship. I'm committed to just, you know, exploring myself more. And I'm in school, in the turn of high school, something that works for me, that's working with my schedule. And I'm making money so eventually I can make a plan to leave my parents home, which was my goal when I turned 18. So I had this ideal plan that I'm, you know, as soon as I'm 18, that I'm just working this out and and this is going to be. And, you know... I'm still um, doing my chores at home. I'm still being supportive to my family. Um, and I'm still being a young person. But to my family, it felt like, oh, I'm rebelling. 
because I was working and I was going to school and then I was never home and I was just like, well, I'm doing these things. And it's like, well, then if you're doing these things then you need to pay these bills. And I'm like, well, I don't ask you for anything. You guys don't provide for me the things that I need to be a young person. And it was just like, well, you're growing up a little bit too fast. And I'm like, well, how, how fast am I supposed to grow? Yeah. You know, you guys are, ex- you know, exposing me to so much that there's no being a child, being a teenager, regardless of my age. Like, I was already exposed. I'm already doing these things. Like, I just need to follow this plan as long as I'm being still a young person that's abiding by the rules of the household. Anything else beyond that, then it's you asking for too much or asking for something that's unreasonable. Um, but my family coming from a Dominican culture where it's like, well, you don't have like you're a child and you know, these things we don't do and like other people and they were really like, what will other people say? And it was really more mostly about my gender expression of me being uh, way too feminine at that time. And it's like, well, you could be, you could be homosexual, you could be gay, you could be whatever you want, but you just don't have to express it. You could still be you. And I'm like, well, I am being me. And it's just it was just like a back to back and forth of like, well, I know what I'm saying. I know that I'm not crazy. Um, and then I just started just doing whatever was feasible to me because I just knew that eventually things were going to end up the way that I had envisioned. That they're gonna kick me out, either I'm just gonna go, either or life is just gonna happen the way it's gonna happen. And that's the way it did because I wasn't ready to leave home because I didn't have I didn't know anything else like. I didn't have any other family in, in the in, in the in the city, so all I was instilled and all I knew was Washington Heights, work, school, but work and school was not gonna help me find a place and they didn't could care less where I sleep at night. Mm-hmm. So I just had to make a plan that worked for me. So in twenty eleven, um of Ju- July third of twenty eleven, um things weren't going well. Um just at home, the relationship. Well, let me go back. Rewind a little bit. Rewind a little bit. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, well, I was dating um, Jesus. Let's give him a name. I was dating Jesus um, from November to July 3rd. Um, and all that time, I found out so many things about Jesus. Um, he was married. Um he was dating other people. He was very instilled in grinder. Like he was known by everybody, um, and everybody was just his ex, but now they're friends. And it was just kind of like for me at sixteen, um, I'm just like brand new into this underground world, into this um, grinder life, into the just like the fast datings, uh, meeting up apps, and all that stuff, and just like what people' intentions were with other people who just weren't as savvy or as um up to date with you know the intentions of all these apps at that time so um i started losing so the friendships that i made um during meeting all those people in the underground world i ended up losing because of Jesus because they were telling me things at the beginning of our relationship that weren't that weren't necessarily true but that were said to them and it was just kind of like I was in a place where like well are you trying to just not have me date this person like what are your intentions so like, I was just kind of like oh everybody's just like <clears throat> coming for my relationship because that was what was instilled in my mind mm-hmm. and it wasn't the case um 
so my my brother who is also part of the world who introduced me to them told me about this person and told me that the person had, well, was um, supposedly going around infesting other people with um, HIV and um, just like just a very nasty person, just a very sick person that's just um, somebody did something mean, something unreasonable to them and then they're going out there replicating exactly what was done to them to other people in a very malicious way. Um, so I stuck through this, I stuck through all that relationship and, um, the person who he was married to used to come, meet us at parties and used to assault him and there was all the protections and like, it got to the point where like every time we seen this person, there was always the police and the ambulance and he was always unconscious. Wow. And, um... You know, it got to a point where, like, I'm sitting with him in the hospital room where they're, like, taking glass out of him. And, like, he's crying on a stretcher. And I'm just like, what do we do? Like, I love you so much. I'm so blinded by everything that I'm being told. But now things are coming and they seem to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, so on July 3rd, um, long story short, he, I was staying at his home for, more, for about three months prior to July 3rd. And I hadn't been home for that time so because things weren't going good at home so I'm just like well I have somewhere to go right now because I'm dating this person so I was staying with that person for the remainder of the three months on the on the third um Jesus um tells me well we're gonna go out um I have to go to Jersey but we're gonna go um to 125th whatever the case may be and we end up going to 125th street we take a cab over there and once we get out of the cab he's like well um I'm breaking up with you or whatever the case may be. I don't know exact words, but it was just kind of like, well, this is over. And I was just, I was just shocked to begin with. I was just shocked. I'm like, like, this is so confusing. Like, what the hell is going on? I'm 16. Like, like I was just going always with my family. The first thing that hit me, like, is where I'm going because I haven't been home for three months. I already know that I, that's not good ice. Then I'm just not going to pop up over there because I told them that I was not coming back because they had kicked me out. So long story short, I started walking from 125th Street all the way to um, 180th in Washington Heights. Mm-hmm. So that's like 50, 60 blocks, yeah. um, including the avenues. <laughs> so it was pretty hot um, summer day, and I was just crying from 125th to 180th. And I'm just like, what am I going to do with my life? Like, I already knew, like, that moment, it was just kind of like, I fucked up a lot of things and I just didn't know how I got there to that point where it was just like how did my life just get here mm-hmm. like nine months ago I was just like brand new working in American Ego going to school at home how am I now homeless that was my first thought and then all the thoughts of like the relationship and everything that I just went through and everything everybody was telling me the first thought was just like he just gave you HIV and you really let him give you HIV. Mm-hmm. And he just broke up with you and everything people were telling you, you just seen it. It's true. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, well, I'm going home. Like, this is the, the only place that I know to go to, regardless of anything, it's just home. Yeah. So I, that was my destination. So I started walking from 125th all the way home. When I get to the door of my, um, my grandmother's apartment door, the first thing she says is, oh, you're home, you're back, or something of that nature. And 
oh, I need to call your father because we need to figure this out because I don't, you, we're not going to be going through this or something of that nature. And because of my father's history, the first thing that I knew that was going to happen is that we were going to get into a physical altercation and he was going to put his hands on me. And I'm just like, wow, I'm not dealing with this right now. So I, um, she lets me in and I sit in the kitchen counter and I just, and I'm crying. She's asking me why I'm crying and she's like coming up with all these assumptions and I'm just like, I'm kind of like, I'm like, everything's going, but I'm not hearing anything. I was just kind of just like in the zone and she's with her problems. She can't even tell. Um, so I sat in the kitchen counter and, um, she had left the kitchen for a while and I just started taking all her bills. All her bills. Mm. They weren't doing anything. And I started taking more pills. Mm. They didn't do anything. So I just left. I walked through the door, lit a cigarette, I started walking, and that was the last thing I remember before I woke up in the hospital. Wow. So I woke up um three days later in the ICU and um I had a tube down my throat and all that stuff. Um, they were just like, you were like seconds away from dying. If somebody would have brought you, picked you up from the streets and brought you in here, you would have been dead. There was no waiting for an ambulance or anything. The person who picked you up and brought you, I was like, pick me up. What are you talking about? And then things started playing back. I'm like, oh, oh, oh my goodness. And yeah, so I was in the hospital for about, 15 days and they sent me to a psych ward for um for 30 days mm-hmm. i was still underage um so my grandmother you know my family came to the hospital they were because i was like a regular in the hospital for a while yeah. um for like um intoxication or just like mm-hmm. mental health suicide ideation stuff like that um because going through all those things at that age it was just kind of like well, I don't know if I have the same issues as her, but I know that I feel certain things inside that I'm just kind of, like, confused. I'm just like, I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't know how to express it. My family doesn't talk. And then I'm the person to blame. Um, So growing up, I had just a lot of issues. So my father, um, he was a very good person, but he would just, like, deal with his frustration with, like, putting his hands on his kids and, like, just showing his discipline that way and as i grew older i just grew uh, a hatred just like hate towards him not towards my father but just towards the person that he was and i just had to grow distance from him so i think you know growing up and i just i guess my grandmother seen it seen was seeing it as a as if me was putting as i was putting him against my father mm. Like, I'm like, I'm not going to put you against your own son, but you have to realize that your son is not, it's not a child anymore. Mm-hmm. That I'm his child. And that he, you know, the way that he's treating you and treating me and then coming in here trying to discipline is just kind of like, well, you have no place because you're never in our lives. Yeah. You have your grandmother, you have your mother, which is our grandmother, taking care of all your three kids and you're living your life. Mm-hmm. And that was the life growing up, you know. Um, there's so many things that play a part into how my family is, but it's just the culture. It's just um, Dominican culture. A lot of Dominican families will tell you the same thing. It was just like, it was very secretive. So to explain it, mm-hmm. it will be so, we'll be here for hours <laughs> and days. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but just to give paint you the picture of just how my family functioned in certain ways and it was just very um toxic and I just felt like that was the the best thing to do at that time was just like I'm I'm lost. Like I just I just want everything to just go black. I just it wasn't that I didn't want to live, it was just I didn't want I didn't want to die. I didn't even know when I took the pills. They they asked me and I'm just like, I don't know. I just I don't know. Like I can't give you a specific answer. It was just like pills, drink, but it was just the moment. Um, but all of that had to play a part. Something led me to those um, to those actions, and even though I didn't know how to explain those actions, so what led me to it, and I, I felt it. It wasn't that I wanted to die. It's just like I guess I wanted people to listen. Mm-hmm. to take some type of like you're killing me yeah. and it was that um, and then not being able to have that conversation with my parents about what I, about the, the scariest thing that I was just going through mm-hmm. because I know that they wouldn't understand yeah. not one bit of it was even scarier mm-hmm. so um, when I was in the psych ward, my parents, my well, my grandmother, my parents, because my father, no show. Yeah. My grandmother, who was also the, the only person there, was just being uh, very unsupportive. Just like, well, that's the problem. Like, you're the problem. Mm-hmm. Like, you're going to stay here. They're going to deal with you. And but the, the hospital explained to her, like, this is a minor. Mm-hmm. Like, you're the guardian. And... We have um, an obligation. We have to keep the person until we feel like the person is safe to go back to your custody. But after we're ready to release the person, you need to be here to take ownership because it's a minor. Mm-hmm. And she didn't understand that. So I was in the in the psych ward for a little longer, and then like the ACS got involved and all that stuff. And it was essentially, well, we're not going to be part of the treatment. Like, family counseling, that's what he wants at the time we don't want that because we don't have an issue the issue's him mm. um so it was just like whoa like this is like i'm supposed to go back to that mm. so and acs wasn't supportive because um we had an acs case prior to that so the same um case manager came and it was just kind of like well you don't get it either so it's like and i was 17 at that point so it was like the options were very very limited yeah it was very like one or two. Mm-hmm. Pick one. And I'm like, well, they're all the same. They're both the same. Still gonna give me the same outcome. Um, so initially I went back home for a while and I just felt like I was suffocating. As soon as I got there, like there was just everybody was scared that I was gonna try to kill myself. Mm-hmm. And then there was kinda like blame like you're so stupid and like and then it was the blame the feeling that I was gonna kill myself and just this other fear that I had inside my like my gut was telling me just like run mm-hmm. and one day I just picked up and I left it was that August and I never came back mm-hmm. since that day in 2011 I haven't been in the same apartment with my family since then wow. And so where did you go? Oh, I went everywhere. 
um, as I was telling you at the beginning, um, the only thing that I knew growing up was Washington Heights. So when I became homeless, it was and it was very instilled. We're just like, I don't know where to go. I just know that I can't go back there. So at the beginning, it was very it was a navigation of me going to like um, the ER and going back to um, the places that I've been before when I was in trouble, and um, it was helpful for the beginning um, because it was just um, no way to go. I started trying Covenant House. I started trying the ERs. I tried to find something that that balanced with the person that I was and what my comfort zones were. Um, I reached out to the friends that I knew for a while. They were okay with it. Um, I was still, you know, trying to like find stable employment, but then it was just like trying to, trying to find somewhere to stay, trying to find something that's going to keep me money and trying to stay in school at the same time because I'm still a minor. Hmm. And I was still going to school during the day because I knew that if I go to school during the day that I will have some at least a room to go to during the day. But then I was like, well, I'm not going to school unless I, you know, freshen up. I'm not going to school dirty. I'm not going to school without being the person that I am. So I can't wear the same thing every day. So I initially didn't think about all those things and everything started playing a a role in where I was. Um, First, I lost my job in American Ego, and then I stopped going to school. School wasn't um, understanding my situation, even though I disclosed to them that I wasn't staying home because of this. And it was just kind of like, well, these are your options. You got to go to a shelter, this or that. Um, so I went to Covenant House. Covenant House was okay for a while, um, but they had so many restrictions, so many barriers to staying there, and, um, and it was only limited. So I was just like, well, I'll stay here for the days that I can, and then when, when they kick me out, they kick me out, and then I'll try again when I can. Um, Because I was a minor at that time, there was only certain shelters that I could go. I couldn't go to an adult shelter. I could only go to a youth shelter. And there was only so many youth shelter beds in the city. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't come to find out about California Center until I had to navigate all all the other services. it was just at the beginning, the first year, the first homelessness year. I could tell you that it was just strictly sleeping on my building where I used to live at. Mm. Sometimes I used to sleep in the front, like in the on top of the the doormat in front of my grandma's apartment, and she had a schedule when she would you come in and out of the apartment. So I already knew before mm. she would come out, I would just you know disappear. Um, until the super started getting um, taken account to it, and then he caught on to it, so then it was an issue, and then it was just put, causing me to, you know, get arrested, so I stopped going there. And then I started sleeping in the train. The train was the same issue. I started getting locked up when they used to um, be out here targeting people who were sleeping on the train, so taking up more than one seat. Um, then I started sleeping um, just in other buildings or wherever the land, you know, the night landed me. which usually used to be right in the train or in the turnstile or somewhere. Um, in the summer times, I used to hang out a lot around Christopher Street and hang out with, like, a lot of the kids there. Um, but I didn't start doing um, survival sex work until 26, 2015, 2016. Um, out there, personally. Um yeah, so it was just very, just like navigating just like the streets and like making it work. 
They have to they go to the drop-in centers. I found out about um, Hedrick Martin Institute around 2012. So I started going there um, faithfully. Um, they were like one of the major people um, to help me get my life back in track. Um, yeah. So it was really a roller coaster. A little, I would say, a little bit everywhere. Yeah. I've been in imaginary places. I've walked up in unthinkable places. Sometimes I would get high and I'm like, how, how did I end up here? I'm like all the way in like Rockaway, Queens. Like, mm. never been out here before. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to get high, ride a train, and wherever the line took me. Wow. So it was really just like improvising every day? Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the beginning of, from 2011 to 2015 to when I just like got some type of balance in my life and some some type of stability, it was just kind of like making it work, you know, improvising of like this, I got this and then I know I'm able to get this and go here Um, or I'm, you know, I have a little money in my hand, on my pocket so I could, you know, stay up for two, three days, you know, you know, on the drugs and it was, you know, it was, it was workable then. Until I hit like complete rock bottom in 2015, January 2015. And so, where was your friends from the community or from the underground scene? Were they around during that time? What kind of connections were you able to sustain? Well, once I once I lost my job at American Eagle and certain things weren't going, you know, as as they were when they met me, you know, I started, my opinion started changing, you know, my circumstances started changing. I wasn't accessible. I didn't have funds to do certain things. So people, people change. People, uh, I didn't, I wouldn't say they changed. They showed their true colors. Um, now that I'm, you know, more, much wiser, you know, you, you understand what a friendship is. And I just felt like a lot of people just turned their backs on me when I was going through my hardest hardship. Um, and I didn't understand it at then because I was, you know, brand new into the scene. Everybody that I that I was hanging out with were older than me. I was the youngest one, mm-hmm. 16, 17, and all my other friends were 18, um, 19, and 20. Okay. So I was the youngest one of the, bound, of the bunch, and I've always hanged out with, um, around older people, much older, wiser, and mature people. Um, that's always been since I was a child. So that's why I say that I think that I matured a little bit quicker than others. Um, but once things didn't weren't the same when they met me, um, a lot of people turned their backs on me. Even my brother. Um, it's not till since I got my life back on track that I've um, built some type of relationship with my brother just because I don't have any other family that I stayed in contact with. And I'm like, well, my brother's been the only other, the only much reasonable person in my family and who's gone through similar experiences and that understands me and what I'm going through now and um, and who some some way or another is always tried to be supportive regardless of you know their situation but I also realized that my siblings had you know to save themselves also they were also put in similar circumstances just not the same you know as me um, so my brother and I have a uh, connection and a relationship now. We don't see each other as often because he lives in Brooklyn and works in Brooklyn. And I live in the Bronx all the way on the other side. So he doesn't like traveling. But we see each other, we see each other 
the last time, the most previous time, I would say, no, there's um, June. No, May. It was May 30th for when I received the award. And he went to the award ceremony. So, um, yeah, and we talk with each other, we talk with each other here and there. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe we can start talking then about you're in this like really deep, dark situation, right? <clears throat> Sorry. Um, and so at what point did you feel like you were able or what happened that you were able to kind of like get some stability? Um, and what were the kind of like ways in which you were able to um, achieve that? Or maybe was it just luck or was it like what happened? Yes. Um, I wouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't say that I believe in luck, but it was, I think that it had to do a little bit with luck and just like your higher power and your higher like spiritual beliefs and stuff like that. Um, in 20, um, 2015, January 25th of 2015, I ended up getting arrested, um, on a burglary charge. It's a class D felony. Um, while I was homeless and, um, addicted to, um, K2, which was, um, synthetic marijuana. And I was just, I had, like, an, an, an extensive long record with NYPD of just, like, copying the turnstile, petty larceny, grand larceny, and, um, trespassing, and it was, like, they were just kind of, like, fed up with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that charge, um, while I was going through my homeless experiences, you know, doing drugs, I I wouldn't excuse it or 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 re or this or say that this is the reason why I did these things. No, I did it for survival. I did it because I knew this would get me somewhere or something that I needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously I wasn't crazy. I was you know making decisions for myself. You know decisions for my circumstances and. Not everybody will understand, but um, I was just stealing. Um, I would if I would go into Dwayne Reed and catch a couple, um, what do they call accessories or um, deodorants on like toiletries that I could sell or like make a profit. But, like I was getting it to make a profit for my addiction and make a profit for whatever else I needed to survive it or to make it through the day. Um, when other things weren't working as they should have. So whenever, um, the colder nights were the nights where you needed the more funds to make sure that you made it to the next night. Either you needed a lot of drugs or you needed just a place to stay warm or you needed food that day, uh, depending on the schedule that you worked that kept you alive. And every homeless person knows um, that experience of like, this is what works for me so I can make sure that I make it to the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that, around that time, I was stealing um, UPS packages um, off of like building steps and stuff like that. And I used to go up to Washington Heights and to like um, an A-Rap store and like one of them corner stores, sell these stores that will, you know, buy whatever um, profit or they would exchange it for like K2 or they would exchange it for funds or cigarettes or whatever it was feasible to um, refund you for. So I was doing that for a while. I got caught up with NYPD because obviously I wasn't good at it. Um, And 
on January 25th, like, I ended up getting arrested um, with, like, like right-handed, basically. Mm-hmm. And they, when I went to arraignment, they were just, like, saying seven years. And I was just like, seven what? <laughs> Said seven, seven hours? <laughs> and, um, no, they were really serious with me. Um, luckily, they didn't give me, uh, like, male tampering charge and stuff like that, which was um, would have been federal. Um, when I got to Rikers, um, to Rikers Island here in the city, um, it wasn't my first time there, but the number of time that I was facing and the circumstances and just like me, like coming down off, like, um, coming off the high and like being sober and like now being put in this like unpredictable environment and a very... In an environment where it's not guaranteed for me to make it alive, you know, um, I was just very, I was traumatized. Like, I was like, it was like a rude awakening. It was kind of like, this is going to be your life. And I just, this like suicide ideation clicked into my brain and it was just like every second and every moment that I got to try and harm myself or try to kill myself, I was doing it. And it was for a whole two months period, the first two months that I was in the Department of Corrections, so it was just kind of an incentive, like, in and out of the hospital or, like, being restrained or being put in hand suicide observation. Um, And it was very tough for me. It was very just... It wasn't the, the idea of me being incarcerated because that wasn't an issue like I had somewhere to sleep now you know I'm, I'm homeless I'm getting three meals I'm sleeping I'm, you know, I'm getting a shower like a free haircut you know every 15 days like what more can I ask for you know I don't have anything yeah. to really care for other than my freedom mm. other than not being institutionalized but you adapt and um because I has like I said it wasn't my first time there I've done 12 days I've done 25, the most that I've done prior to that time was like 20, 22, 23 days um, for petty stuff. And and now I'm facing time. And it was just kind of like, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of being afraid. I'm sick and tired of being hungry. I'm sick and tired of going through this. I'm sick and tired of just the system and the experiences. I'm tired of my family. I'm tired of living. I'm tired of breathing. I'm just tired of being tired. Mm -hmm. And that was my mentality. I just like, I, I just... If dying is gonna prevent for me keep going through this and keep tumbling and keep like failing in life, then just let me go, please. Um, and I don't know. I tried a lot of things, and I guess God didn't let me go. Um, that's my understanding of it now. But then I was just kind of like, what the fuck? Like, could you just let me die? Like, I know it's you. Like, you know, like, stopping me every time I'm close to death. And the officers was like, well, that's their job. Some officers were like, they didn't care. Some officers were abusive of you after you tried to harm yourself. Um, and then some officers will, you know, will see that, okay, you're really, like, in a state of crisis. And um, I think everything just worked out for, for you know, and in its best way because I was really just in a state of crisis. I was just kind of like, I was gone. I was gone. I was just, my, I couldn't speak for myself because I didn't know what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So after 20 days of me going in and out of like um, the enhanced suicide observation unit and like them placing me in like suicide smogs and like um, everything, everything they could do while I was incarcerated to prevent from me from harming myself wasn't working. So they um, sent me to Bellevue Hospital to their prison war where it was like a hospital unit, but it was monitored by Department of Corrections. Yeah. So I went there and they kept me for 22 days. They um, admitted me immediately. And that fear of being incarcerated and going through what I was going through and just kind of like finding a balance to deal with it because I knew that I didn't want to die technically. I just wanted the experiences that I was going through to stop or for me to find some type of balance so I can deal with it and be where I'm at now. Um, so I got to that stage where I was just a little bit more, um, contraceptive of like what I was going through or like understanding and I found some type of coping mechanism. I would say that it's, it was just like a higher power. It was just something that I said, you know, what? I'm going to put my faith into this because that's all I got. And I did, um. While I was in the in the hospital prison ward, um, my lawyer came to see me because I had missed all my arraignments and my previous court days because I was because mental health and like medical supersedes all of it, and your lawyer only finds out when he comes to you and they tell him, oh well your client is in so and so place, um, so they find he found out that I was in 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 the hospital and he came to see me on a Sunday I remember. He came in his jeans and he's like six five, real skinny dude, Ryan Shanovich, I still remember. And he was just very like traumatized by seeing me in the state of crisis that I was in. And and I just let him have it from when I was from what I remember from when I was born to the moment to where he saw me. I'm just like, I'm tired. I'm ready to just let go. I don't want to see another court day. I don't want to see another judge. I just, if no one is willing to listen to my, what I'm going through and help me get out of this so that I can be in a better place and I have to keep going in front of a judge, then just let me die because you're not going to lock me up and throw away the key because that's not a no-go because I know that's not a life for me. I know that I don't deserve to be here. I know that I don't deserve to be going through this and be dealing with this because that's not the person that I am. Try to meet the person that I am. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I, I guess like the the realness and the conversation that we had then there was just instilled him and wanting to help me like very, very, very to the fullest. And he was an 18B lawyer, not a, um, not a legal aide, and he was just, like, very great at doing his job and wanting to help me. He was just like, I, I've met a lot of people. I've met a lot of people in your situations, and I just know that you're not a person that deserves to be here. Like, just knowing out of, like, how, how um, he basically said, like, how advantage I've been or how, or, like, all the opportunities that I've had. If I would have been in your situations, no one would understand it. But just hearing your story and just, like, listening to everything you've been through, like, there's no way that I can judge you for everything you've done and for you being where you're at now. Um, So he was like, this is the best way for me to help you. And 
he did exactly what he said he would do and in nine months I was out of Rikers Island um, he got me into Manhattan uh, Mental Health Court which is like a different um, type of like criminal justice it's not a different type but it's just like more designed to help um, folks who have mental health um, issues or like um, substance abuse issues you know who have a lot of interactions with the criminal justice system work out their their needs while working out um, their their legal um, issues or situations if it inflicts each other. So it, it was like, it was related to each other. So my addiction led me to do those things. So my circumstances led me to do those things. So the best thing um, was um, they got me into a treatment program for 18 months, um, which was conditional discharge to sentence to a city year and then complete 18 months um, in a residential treatment program. Mm -hmm. The the program was designed for, it was nine to 18 months. I had to be there from 10 to 18 months or do a city year. I already had my time in. Nine years constitute to a year in city sentence. In the, in the city so technically I had to go to the treatment program and complete it so that I can get a misdemeanor charge on my record instead of a felony um, so I went to the treatment program the treatment program was amazing in the in the way that it showed me a lot about myself a lot of things that I'm strong in and a lot of things that I'm weak in and they've been and it's made them better because I'm more awakened in my my choices, my people, places, and things. It's really what um, rehab kind of like instills in you: people, places, and things. Like that goes with like addiction. It goes with like employment, with like success, with everything. Just like people, places, and things. Like that's all that's gonna either make it better or make it worse. Um, So I was incarcerated from January 25th to 2018, 2015 to August 21st of 2015. Okay. So that was nine months and like a little bit of change. Um, the same day that I um, got released, I walked into um, rehab right there in the Lower East Side, um, Avenue D. I was there from August 21st to the ending of December. Only completed about five and a half months. So um, when I left there, it, I left there without notifying the courts and stuff like that. So now it was a warrant for my arrest because I didn't complete my conditional discharge. I left there because I already got what I needed. And I knew that I was not going to stay in a place that I knew that was going to sidetrack what I already needed knew what um that that I was willing to do. So it was just like now you're gonna just it's gonna prolong it if I just stay here and knowing that I don't need this, whether whether I have to turn myself back in and just go back so that the, the judge could put this as a felony on the docket because I already did my time regardless. So I wouldn't have to go back to Rikers. I would just have to come in front of the judge and then when we're in front of the judge you get released back to um your own continents. Um so I did that. I turned myself in like a week later and they, you know, 
calculated all the numbers and all that stuff, and now I have a felony on my record for leaving the poem. If I would have stayed for the 18 months, then I would have got the misdemeanor charge. But it was just the way that the OASIS programs, the residential rehab programs are are run in the city. They're good for people who really are there for the drug addiction and just like, I need to get off the drug and the way that they do it, like breaking you down and building you back up. Mm-hmm. I got the broken down, they're building back up and it's just like, okay, now nah, I'm done. I don't need to go through your whole 18 months of you basically torturing me or me no like being in a place where I know that I don't need to be because somebody else is telling me that this is where I need to be so that my life could be saved. And I've proven it. Proven that. If not yet, then I'll prove it very soon. <laughs> but I've done the work to not go back into the system and to keep myself out of the system. So since 2015, I haven't interacted with the law or been incarcerated again. And everything that I said that I was going to do once I got out of jail, I've done. And now I have my own apartment. I'm working as a, as a self-employed consultant. Um, I have two active contracts and, you know, just um, being grateful and keeping the, um, just keeping the, the, the work going of like my own personal and professional development. Yeah. And the things that I want to achieve in life mm-hmm. from my experiences. I think my, my experiences and my circumstances have made me not only a better human being, but a better, you know, just a better, um, just a per- better person in general, just a better person in, in, in understanding life and understanding my own life and trying to help people and giving back and just showing some type of humanity and just like being knowledgeable and, you know, everybody is going through their own individual crisis and just finding a way that the community and, like, the world can can be supportive um, of each other's needs and, and struggles and crisis. And it's like, I believe in, like, whatever you put out in the world, you get that back ten times back or ten times more. It's like the law of attraction. So it's like... Um, negative attracts negative and positive attracts positive and just like whatever you put out there is like was going to come back and while I was incarcerated I read a lot of books I was introduced to the secret while I was incarcerated by one of um, one of the one of the officers who I um, grew a connection to um, not in contact with unfortunately because I don't know I think that would be illegal for them Um, but you know just to, I met a lot of officers or a lot of like um, mental health professionals in in corrections who who really were there for the right reasons or who were really there just you know to do their job and nothing more, um, and I made it through because of them and other people that I met, other friendships that I made in inside of corrections. So I made friends with two inmates who I now hold since 2015 to now it's 18, three years. And it's just kind of like, wow, like you, you never know where you're going to meet the people who are going to be there for you or, you know, or just someone who's going to help you make it to the next day. And I met a lot of people that helped me make it to the next day in corrections. Um, and that just gave me a lot of knowledge and a lot of power for me to make it out make it out of there and then make it from when I'm out of there and like in the streets. So when did you start kind of connecting 
with the organizations and places that you're now kind of doing advocacy work in? Yes. Um, so I started my advocacy tenure in Hedrick Martin. Um, I started going to Hedrick Martin since 2011, 2012. I said, yeah, since 2012 as a, as a youth in crisis. So I started utilizing their like pantry services and like their um, hot meals and, um, their homeless youth services, like, you know, just like the drop-in center. So I used to go there every day from three to seven. Mm-hmm. And that would be like my safe haven from, from those days, Monday through Friday and Saturdays, it was open from like 11, 11 to five or six or something like that. So I used to be there all day. While I was going through um, all my homeless experiences, like in and out of jail and um, in and out of rehab and just like really just going through it, like they were always there. If I call them and I say, hey, I'm, I'm incarcerated, can you know, you speak to my lawyer, like tell them like, verify that I've been going through these situations or like this letter for, for the judge or this letter for me to go to HRA or whatever the case may be, like they help me with all of that. Um, while I was going through homelessness, um, I was applying for, um, for housing and stuff like that through them, through their homeless youth department. So um, I got my, my housing voucher through Hedrick Martin. So when I came out of um, rehab, around that time, my voucher had got approved. So now I just needed to find um, a, a landlord to take my case to find, you know, to move in. So they helped me do all of that. I didn't get to move in until 2017. In 2016, I went into the shelter system, the Prominent Homeless Service for the adult services, because mm-hmm. I already had a voucher approved. Okay. So I knew that it was it was not gonna take long. So I did nine months in the Prominent Homeless Services and I got my apartment. Mm-hmm. I got connected to someone who interviewed me, um, one of the landlords, and that first landlord who interviewed me, um, Gave me a second interview. Once I had a second interview, they were, I was ready for moving and stuff like that. So I moved in August 3rd of 2017. Mm-hmm. I just made a year on the 3rd of this month. Congrats. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I'll be moving this year too, bef- um, before my birthday, to a more stable um, apartment. So now I live in a support housing unit. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to move out to a one-bedroom apartment um, that's not in a supportive housing um, complex. So that'll be just like, that was like my end goal. Yeah, yeah. For like eight, like um, getting out of the system. Um, it's so HMI has been like my main go to place. Um, so when I, you know, started getting more stable and then I had like a stable shelter to go to, like a go to shelter and stuff like that, I started getting um connected to like the programs that they were offering. Um got connected to their high school equivalency um, classes, and I started taking some classes there. I started joining their internships just to keep myself busy and um, build some um, job employment skills for my resume. And, because um, I've always kept myself employed or kept myself um, engaged in something that will be applied to my resume and that will keep me you know, engaged in the community. So through the internships that were offered, I got to build, um, I was able to build an advocacy platform. And I think just people just 
started grasping to how I told my story, you know, how open I was of my experiences. It's just like talking about, you know, um, my challenges and how I overcame those challenges and, you know, what my goals are for myself and for the community and for, and just like, um, how difficult, you know, this navigating this system is. Um, so I got connected to one organization, to the other organization, to this opportunity, to another opportunity to write an article. Um, and then I saw that I was, um, that I had an opportunity to create some type of positive and positive, meaningful and purposeful change or not, or not necessarily change, but just have some type of, um, platform that meant something to somebody that I was able to connect with somebody because of my story or that somebody was able to connect to me or my experiences and my community because of my story so I saw that my story had a I had a power in it because I the more that I told it the more people that wanted to get to know me the more opportunities that opened the more doors that you know that um that were just opening that and I was walking through each and one of them because I said, you know, this is the law, my law of attraction. This is, you know, this is what my path and my higher power and my, you know, positivity is telling me that it's going to, you know, be a meaningful and purposeful engagement for me, for myself. And I just took it one day at a time. The same way that my domino, that my life went down on a domino effect, I felt like it's going back up. Mm-hmm. Everything that I said that I wanted to accomplish and the things that I've found out that I want to accomplish now, I'm working towards and I'm accomplishing every day um, just because I keep a positive um, outlook in, in life. I, I look at how, how much I've overcame and that gives me power. Whenever I feel down, whenever I feel like, you know, this might not be the right choice to make, I look back at those experiences that I overcame and, you know, say, you know, you know, this this it just happened because of something else, or something else is about to just burst into, you know, that right path that I'm supposed to follow, and and it usually it does. You know, I don't I don't mean to sound um, selfish or just kind of like you know gassing your head, but it, it really, I really do believe it. That and I feel like the more that you believe in it, the more power that you put into it, the more that it, you know it becomes reality for you for for the person who who's putting the positivity out there who and expecting that positivity back because that's the way that their life has revolved for the past few years. And so through that work, have you been able to kind of um, re-find a larger community of trans people, of LGBTQ people? Um, or like what are the ways in which maybe you had this like underground community before and you kind of lost it through your experience with homelessness and so what is maybe different or how did you start finding community in this new stage of your life yes um so prior to my incarceration in 2015 i was not identified i did not identify as a transgender woman or a transgender individual i was just a queer gay young man um going through a self-discovery <laughs> i was always very 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 feminine always growing up very feminine and always had long hair and long lashes and and it was always in me um a lot of people while my transition once i started um 
meeting people in the underground world, they would tell me, oh, you want to be trans. I just didn't know what trans was. Like, mm-hmm. like you want to be a girl, right? I'm like, no, I just want to be me. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm like, because I'm like, being a girl, like, that was never, in a, like, uh, it never seemed possible for me. Like, I was like, I don't, never met a boy that could be a girl. Like, mm-hmm. So enlighten me if you can. <laughs> um, that was my mentality at 15 and 16. Um, so when I got incarcerated in 2015, for that time, that's when I met a, tr- a whole bunch of transgender community who are incarcerated. And I'm just like, oh my God. Like, you're really, girl, boy, uh, what? Like, huh? Like, this is so confusing. And I was very enlightened about just... N- very enlightened of the, 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 the transition and like really seeing it with my own eyes. Like you really can just become who you want to become and be who you want to be. Um, but one thing that I, um, let me try to rewind a little bit because it, it, the way that it happened for me is a very different way that it happened for a lot of other transgender individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say that I've always known that I always wanted to be a girl, but I always known that I've always been feminine, that I've always been myself. Mm-hmm. I've always known that. Um, so when I went to Rikers in 2015, um, I, after I left, that had sort of observation and came back from Bellevue. They were finding, you know, what's the best place to put me in. Um, I was told about the transgender housing unit that was just um, randomly, um, newly open in the Rikers Island, and they had trans, and there was only transgender individuals housed there. But I wasn't a transgender individual when I was in Rikers. I was booked as a male, as just, you know, just gay and et cetera, et cetera. And I, didn't um my appearance in the outer and the, in the outside didn't uh, didn't reflect with a transgender individual okay. or with a quote-unquote norm of a transgender individual um so doc was like very hesitant like well should we place this person there like you're very feminine you just don't look feminine yeah. um so i kind of explained to them you know this is who i am this is how i feel and this is the best place for me. So I pleaded my case and eventually I got placed there. I was placed there for four months and I met, in those four months, I met a lot of transgenders, individuals, old, um, older, younger, um, in the beginning stages of the transition, in the middle, in, in the stuck phase, like, you know, the, in the faces that, you know, that, that was explained to me. And everybody there was just rooting for me. They're like, I see it, I see it, I see it, I see it. And I just started being more of myself while I was there, you know. And and it, and it was it was both healthy for me mental mentally because of everything I had just went through, uh, you know, in the mental health ward and like Bellevue, and now just being going into a place. Um, where there's other people that I can relate to and conversate with and actually laugh, talk, cry, and, you know, do certain things while being incarcerated. It was just, like, mind-blowing for me. Like, I just felt, I felt safe there. Um, ultimately, things didn't um, end up the way that I wanted to end up. I didn't end up 
staying in the transgender housing unit for the remainder of my incarceration because other transgender women came in and not every transgender woman is friendly. Mm-hmm. Friendly or it's not accepting of other transgenders or they're just, you know, my the excuse that I made for them was that they were institutionalized. Mm-hmm. They were institutionalized and they were stigmatized by what their reality was. And I was like, well, this is my reality and I'm going to stick to that. Like, mm-hmm. I may not be trans, but I'm trans enough to be here. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and they made it, well, the, the group of the trans girls who weren't friendly um, made it their mission to get everyone out of there who didn't reflect transgender. Mm-hmm. Cause there is only it was only limited beds. It was thirty one beds, and the girls that were in there wanted to create the house um, to to either be all trans like the girls who were in the clique who you know they that were known to them hmm. and their boyfriends. Hmm. So you know jail just works a different way that if you stick together, you can make things happen. And you could have people get out of the house and have other people come in and stuff like that. So it was a long story short. I didn't end up staying there. So when I went to, when I signed out of the air to, and then signed in to protective custody, because now once you sign out of the air, you either go to general population or you go to PC, but you have to sign in voluntarily. <laughs> so I signed in to protective custody and I went to another building and I was in a housing unit where there was other transgender, there was other gay folks, and then there was just, like, other heterosexual guys. And there was, like, a little program, quote-unquote, what they call it. It's just, like, the way things go. And it was a very open house. You know, people could have relationships. People could, um, the, the, the transgender girls were left alone. The gay people were left alone. Like, nobody really messed with them. Um, and I was instilled in that. So long story short, um, a guy grabs into, you know, being in a relationship with me and I was named Sophie and corrections, like prior to me being in that housing unit, like everybody, everybody who knows me in correction knows me by Sophie. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows me by Sophie. Like they, I was giving that name once and. And then from there, it was just like everything just has been Sophie. And I don't have an explanation for it. It's just how I feel, who I am. And when I came out of um, DOC and finished rehab and stuff like that, I changed my name. When I said, well, this is who I'm going to live as. This is the person who I've created. Um, the person who I've always envisioned. Mm-hmm. I feel like that person now. And I went on and I changed my name legally. Um, I did all the gender marker. I said that I wanted to change everything on paper before I started um, doing the medical transition. And um, I started the medical transition when I went into the shelter, October of 2016. Mm-hmm. And I continued that consistently. And I changed my name. My name was changed officially in February of 2016. No, 2017. February of 2017, because it was a brand new year, yeah. Okay. Okay, so yeah. Yeah, so that's like a big undertaking to take while incarcerated, mm-hmm. um, but seems like a really interesting space to be in. I mean, like, 
the trans ward and the um, kind of mixed protective custody. Yeah. Like, that's not something that maybe is a part of some people's experiences of incarceration pre a certain date, right? Yeah. Um, so what was the kind of, like, pre um, the other girls getting in and trying to uh, make it, like, their house? Um, what was the kind of, like, feeling and the environment and, like, the setup of uh, that section? Yeah. From what I understood um, for the time that I was there was that a lot of the girls who weren't as friendly was the girls who have been in and out of corrections for a while and who have um, been sentenced to state time prior to this incarceration. So these are girls who know each other from town, who have been girls for, you know, four or five years plus, and who have been in and out of corrections for doing things that I was introduced to, which is like the uh, the escorting and the um, white collar crimes and like um, just the date the date world. You know, the the day rape and the, all that stuff I was introduced to while in conversations there that I've, once I started doing sex work or survival sex work, I used some of those techniques for my benefit when I started doing sex work as a transgender individual. Um, something that I transitioned out because it's not it's not aligned with um, it's not aligned with my goals and it's not aligned with the person that I've envisioned and the person that I've created. But it's something that it's our survival. So if we know that it makes ends meet, we're gonna make ends meet regardless of what because the vision of our that we've created for ourselves is bigger and is more important than me feeling um, belittled or feeling unworthy because I'm going through this experience or because I need to do this to survive. So I guess sometimes it's important to to explain it to people because sometimes it's different for other folks. Um, But for my life, it's been like that. Um, So going back to corrections, most of the girls have been there before who already know how the system works, you know, and I was just the new girl. I was both the new girl in corrections because it's like the first time that I'm facing time, the first time that I'm actually doing more than 30 days. And and I'm also a new girl, like a new girl in the sense of like, you're new to what we're telling you. You're new to what we're exposing you to. Like, you know, prior to this, how many other trans women did you know? And so they use all of that um, once you meet a, a person, like the first two days was good, the third day was all right, the fourth day was a little better, and then after that, it just started going downhill because you're living with with, with these people twenty four hours a day in a dorm setting, mm-hmm. and when you put a whole bunch of transgender women who live this lifestyle, who are incarcerated, who are institutionalized, there's something other than to pick at each other. But my mind was in working myself out of being incarcerated. So I was very always like sitting in the day room, working on my um, my um, my legal work, what my lawyer had you know put me to do, going to uh, my therapy sessions during program hours and stuff like that. 
um, I barely made a phone call while I was there. I was either in my bed or I was in the day room doing the things when the day room was open or I was sleeping. Um, I wouldn't really conversate with anybody unless people conversated with me because I was always the outsider. Yeah. And I didn't have um, the things that they all had. Like, they all had 125 in their commissary a week to go shopping. I didn't. I'm saying I probably had twelve dollars out of the job that I used to do in the in the housing unit that I used to get paid from DOC yeah. to go to commissary. So I we, I wasn't able to share time with them, or I wasn't put in the same pedestal as them, mm-hmm. to sort of speak. Um, so all of that, once other girls started coming in that they were familiar with, it was like the shade mm-hmm. would come out, yeah. and. It was just like, oh, wow, people's shoe colors are really coming out. It was just like, you know, but I was always a strong-minded person and a very boisterous person. So I was just like, I would just let it know, like, well, that's that. And that's that. Well, it doesn't really matter. Like, I'm not living life with you, with you all of y'all for the rest of my life. I, I'm always really realistic with, you know, how I speak and, and what I say before I say it. And they were like, oh, well, you're always trying to be politically correct. And I'm just like, well, I'm not. I'm just speaking facts um and a lot of them didn't like you know that i was very boisterous and uh in a in a place where i wasn't expected to be boisterous or where i was expected to have a backbone um and i didn't expect myself to have a backbone or or to be boisterous or to stand out for myself in that type of environment but i was put in an environment where i felt safe that i feel like none of you were going to attack me more or more than i can you know defend myself right so it's not like I was in danger of, it, it wasn't the same danger that I felt of being in general population because it was a different type of danger. So it was just like, well, I'm dressing what I have to adjust and whatever you don't like, you don't like, and I'll just go to my bed, you go to your area. But it doesn't work like that, Angel. It's like, I'll pick a you until I want you to get the reaction that I want and then I'll do what I want to do. And, and it's just like, and eventually you get fed up with it. The, I got, ended up, Getting moved, sorry, I ended up getting removed from the housing unit because someone put um, like cleaning detergent in my drink and I reported it to the officer. So once you make a report like that, it's like liability on DOC. So DOC removes you from the housing unit, puts you somewhere else, and then gives you an option on where you want to go. Um, so that's what happened with my case. Um, but I knew, already knew that it was going to happen eventually. I just didn't want to be the person that initiated just like leaving because I'm like, where am I going to go? Like, if I have to go, then I'm gonna have to go because it's like I don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. But if like I'm just gonna suck it up because if I suck up this and go suck up something that I don't know, that's gonna be a more unpredictable situation than this. So um, I've always been a critical thinker. Mm-hmm. I would say that, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, or at least when I wanted to, mm-hmm. um, and that's save me from certain situations but yeah those girls a lot of them are known a lot of them like kitty botolo um venus like these girls who have been in a lot of documentaries like um the marsha p johnson documentary kitty was just on it Mm. in it in her prison uniform Mm. and i was just with kitty in 2015 when um i was in rikers island and she had just went home and and when i was there she had just came in from going home oh, and she got sentenced again oh, wow. okay. so now she's back up there and she's like i don't when i'm home when i'm out free mm-hmm. i don't know how to like 
I always end up back over here. I don't know if it's that I'm instilled into the prison environment or whatever the case may be, but this is the norm for me. And she's up there, you know, and I, and, and, and it sucks that a girl's reality is in and out of jail because of their, you know, survival. And, and it's not all because it's a survival because a lot of girls do make it, do get this sex change and, and are not in a predicament where they need to keep doing what they're doing, but that's all they know. That's all the reality. So it's like, while they were working so hard to, to, to be passable, to be, um, to be accepted as a woman in this society. And I did all everything I did and I worked so hard for the last three, four five years or six years or the last decade doing this. I didn't work on anything else. I didn't work on my career. I didn't work on my employment. I didn't work on family. I didn't work on love. I didn't work on this, anything but being passable. So when you get to that stage, it's like, well, now I want to go enjoy life. What life? You're enjoying the life that you you keep on going because you already developed and instill yourself on this being your reality. So I think that I was exposed to, to a lot of things before my transition that once I started my transition, I said, this is, this is where I feel comfortable. This is, you know, this is where I now say the transition is, is, is transitioning because the transition is always there. Like you, you're always like transitioning from day to day to day, but it's like when you turn on the transition switch, which is like, okay, now you're going to see some fast paced things and you know, you're not, you might not be ready, but you know, it's, it's going to accelerate right now. Mm-hmm. And things start accelerating, or you know, you start changing your name. You start, you know, people gotta respect your pronouns, and you start using this certain, this, you know, this specific bathroom, and you behave a certain way, and just like, okay, you know, now I'm getting into my real self, and it just it starts molding in. A lot of girls didn't have that exposure prior to their transition. They were just like, I'm just gonna go straight in, mm-hmm. and. And whatever happens, happens. And I think I had an, an opportunity to see, you know, two sides of um, of trans lives, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is the unpredictable and the predictable, which is like, now nah, I could, you know, I'm some type of, like, I live this type of lifestyle. So, you know, it's it's unpredictable, but I can predict certain things that I, that I can, you know, that I know for sure that if I put in the work that this was going to happen. But this life is totally unpredictable. It's just like, I don't know if I'm going to have money at the end of the day. I don't know if I'm going to, you know, be alive at the end of the day. But I know that if I continue and I, and I do it good and I get the program right, that I'm going to make something. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that it promises you. You're going to make something happen. Yeah. Um, so that... That difference of two trans lives is really, it's something that I keep in the front front of my advocacy. I try to really emphasize on it. I really try to explain it to people in a way that it makes sense because it's really really difficult. They're like, well, that's the same thing saying women women are women, but you know, there's different types of women. You know what I'm saying? This this type of unpredictable lives of women is this predictable life of women. So, you know, not every woman it um, holds a a master's and is in school and has left this lifestyle. A lot of women still prostitutes, still escorts, still, you know, live this ungodly lifestyle. Um, and then you have these other um, traditional cisgender women who have successful lives and all this stuff. Um, and the same thing goes for transgender women. And it's just like, we, when we do this advocacy, we do it for the entire community. And our goal is that 
trans people have sustainable and stable lives, stable and sustainable Mm -hmm. lives. Um, And then eventually we cycle out of that um, survival sex work or survival of anything that we just have the same opportunities as other people, but that there's still going to be that percentage of transgender women who are not going to be safe, who don't want to, who just have their, this is, this is all I know. And this is what I'm going to continue because this is the culture. So it's it's different for a lot of people, and I feel like our gen, our our newer generation, our generation, the generation that I'm part of, mm-hmm. um, is is been privileged to have so many like advanced laws and advanced um, stigmas, and and we're just in a better place when it comes to transgender issues and transgender lives. Yeah. That is very beneficial to 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 now say, okay, I can actually be a transgender person and have a stable. Um, productive life and be a productive a member of society and I just feel like oh am I gonna be able to make it like what is my life gonna be so we don't see a lot of like I've seen a lot of transgender women in in, in wonderful positions and in higher positions and now we we have um, um, a transgender person in the house a transgender person in legislation like um, we have a um, trans person um, running for assembly of New York. Like, you know, we're seeing, you know, improvement and we're seeing that we're, we're being integrated into society little by little. Yeah. <laughs> we've always been here, but now we've been integrated little yeah. by little. You know, we've been being, we're, we're being part of the picture. We're being part of the conversation. We're holding um, positions, you know, important positions and the improvement and development of like the world, to sort of speak. Um, but just in humanity, we're teaching the world humanity in so many levels. Um, but it's not going to be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And so what does your advocacy work consist of now? Um, so my advocacy work consists, uh, right now consists of, um, I hold the title of Transgender, Gender Nonconforming and Non-Binary Policy Advisor. Mm-hmm. So I'm self-employed. Um, I have myself myself. I have made myself self-employed. Um, I'm only doing consulting work until I find the right full-time position. Mm-hmm. And and even when after I do, I would still hold my consultant title um, as transgender policy advisor. Um, right now, I have an active contract with Point Source Youth, whose mission is to prevent um, youth homelessness um, with the mission of ending youth homelessness in 10 to 20 years. Um, we are a nationwide organization where we have pilots right now in, um, in the South, in, um, in the East Coast, in the North, and the Northeast. Okay. Um, no, sorry, in the, not the East Coast, the West Coast and the Northeast Coast. Okay. There we go. Okay. <laughs> the West is like LA. Texas and Southern, you know, Southeastern Texas. But you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So we have um, four different coasts right now. We're developing um, rapid rehousing, uh, family and kinship, and um, host homes pilot programs in the in different jurisdictions that are, that have high um, rates of um, youth homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, ideally, our goal is to end homelessness period, um, but with a big emphasis on youth homelessness. Yeah. Um, and a higher emphasis on LGBT youth homelessness. So what I provide for Point Source, well, Point Source Youth is, we only provide, um, like, the expertise and, like, uh, models and key interventions that work to end homelessness. Mm -hmm. We only provide the expertise. We provide, like, the models and the support. We don't do direct services. 
So we, we partner with other nonprofit organizations, local agencies, um, on, in those jurisdictions to um, further the further our key interventions so that they could try it mm-hmm. or um, implement it to the end homelessness in their jurisdictions. Okay. So it's the, is the in like English terms is um, basically dismantling the old system and putting this system with these three key interventions so it could work. Okay. Um, in addition to that, I am a sitting board member for the New York City Continuum of Care Youth Advisory Board, which has now been renamed to Youth Action Board. And what we do is we provide um, advice and um, basically our own expertise and knowledge in syst- systemic change and like homelessness from our own experience and from the things that we have learned in the, in the workforce. To the home, to, to the mayor's off, to New, to New York City's mayor's office, homeless task force, mm-hmm. youth homelessness task force. Okay. Yeah, there you go. And yeah, and aside to that, I do other side projects. I um, I stick to really just representing the trans um, transgender, gender conforming, and non-binary youth spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, but I speak from an adult perspective. I speak from a youth perspective. I speak from a sex worker's perspective. I just speak from a person who has been through these challenges, these systemic um, barriers, and who's trying to achieve these goals in this setting mm-hmm. for this purpose. So I just keep that in the front front. And and just being me myself has opened up so many doors. So sometimes I don't even know um, what exactly the topic of the conversation might be, or you know who or what in specific I'm advocating for. But just me going in there and having a conversation about my experience and about you know how this system, um, you know, was so um, more of a disservice than a service for me. And this is this is in way um, and point and make it in and put it in a way where people can um, feel what you're saying and eventually you know you create some type of change out of that you know you you I, I often say that my work is just to change uh, minds and souls you know or right, if I can't change it then I can at least make you sympathize and empathize with it to come to an understanding where like well, you're just a human just like me and that's my ultimate goal to give my community the opportunities that we deserve that's incredible yeah um yeah i mean i have one question that isn't like super um related to like everything we've been talking about but i'm interested in um and that is like spirituality yes and how that works for you because i noticed throughout your conversation there's like there are moments where you're like well the only thing is like some higher power yeah um and so i'm wondering how spirituality has been a part of your life and how it's evolved from a kind of like dominican catholicism yes. to now. <laughs> yeah you know what's crazy um i've never been a religious person um not even in my family's background we've never been a religious family with my family was raised um catholic where we you know we my, fam- my, my grandmother would preach to, like, the Catholic Bible, I, I would say, mm-hmm. for lack of other <laughs> words or 
uh, understandings of it. She will preach the, to the Catholic Bible, um, and she will only practice Catholic um, rituals. Um, but we never went to church. We were never part of a church community. Um, you never saw more than one Bible in my house and, like, you know, um, saints and, like, sanctuaries. We were never part of none of those things. Um, we were just saying, you know, there's a God, you know, and, you know, there's a Bible, and this is what the Bible says, and, you know, we just try to be um, holy people and follow, you know, try to follow the uh, the, the the commandments. Um after like, growing older, I had like a despise of like the church and like, you know, just preaching or just saying God in general, just like, what is God? Like, I'm saying because I was in this situation where I'm just like, God, like if God was here, you think God will allow this? Um, in 2015, when I had no other choice but to put I wouldn't say that I had no other choice, but because I had other choices, but it was just something in the way that everything played its course in that I was just like, there is a higher power. There is something, you know, I'm holding on to something. I'm putting this, this faith is not just on, on a leaf or on top of this table. This, this faith is on something because it's strong, mm-hmm. because it's kept me alive this long and it's gotten me through this barrier and this barrier and this barrier and this wrongdoing and this, you know, um, so I would say that my spirituality right now is, is, is based on the law of attraction Mm -hmm. on like what I put in the world Mm -hmm. is exactly what I'm getting back. The kindness that I do, um, the kindness that I give, the humanity that I, um, that I speak, the, the the kindness that I show people, it's the same kindness that I get back. It's, and it's sometimes not the same because sometimes your challenge, your law of attraction is challenge, and it's and that's that's what you, that's when you choose. Do I put my faith on it or do I put my emotions into it? So I don't do. I no longer speak from emotions. I no longer do from emotions or, or feelings. I just do from what I expect, from what I want other people to to do if I was in that situation so same thing that I've put in the world is exactly what I've gotten back in the last three years I don't know if that's spirituality if that's religion if that's some type of voodoo or like Hinduism or whatever you want to call it but it's 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 work for me and I and I feel like it you know, the, the law of attraction and, and, and that positivity and that magnet of, like, the world, it's really true. It's, or at least it's true for me. Um, but spirituality can be anything. It can be you just, like, um, you know, having, like, a journal entry every day or just, like, um, having a routine of, like, you know, just, you know, not cursing or speaking positive or, you know, not, not letting anything negative change your mood. You know, it could be, it could be what you practice, but I think that spirituality's definition is just faith. You know, what are you putting your faith onto? Yeah. What is going to get you through that hard, through that hard place, through that hard milestone, through that, you know, dark place that you just, you just know that you're going to need that, that faith to hold on and to make it through because there's nothing else that's going to give you that, that instant gratification or that's going to get you out of that situation 
just because. So yeah, spirituality has just been something that I've um, developed and something that I put into every single day as of three years ago. That's that's great. Yeah, yeah, really like just a practice that keeps you moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and even with like um, I just had. Um, a couple of like hard weeks um, from like July 4th to like, just like the like the ending mm-hmm. of um, July was just very hard for me. Like I felt like everything was just going downhill. Like um, one of the friends that I met from Rikers, like just things just crashed that month. And I was just kind of like stuck in like, Am I being a fool to myself or with like like this law of attraction and like doing good for people and like putting the kindness, you know, out there? But what am I getting in return? Like you see how shattered I am. I was just crying for days and, and it wasn't just that that relationship or that friendship. It was just like um like employment and like um not you not not being able to enjoy my twenty three years, you know what I'm saying? Like Ever since I got out of jail, it's been work, 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 like get your life together, get your life together, like get your life together. And that was like what I instilled in myself. So now that I was in a in a space where I was like, wow, but like, you know, I have I'm living in my own apartment, my bills are paid, I have this much money in my account, like, why can't I have fun? Why can't I enjoy just time? Why can't I why don't I want to leave my apartment while I'm home from work? Or why don't I enjoy my weekends? Why don't I leave my apartment on on the weekends? You know, why am I always in this like overshadow of like or this or this thought of like <clears throat> you can't you can't test new things or you can't get out of this um, daily routine because you're gonna get sidetracked and. I just, you know, decided to have fun and decided to, like, just be, you know, just give to people that I knew that just needed to, you know, needed things. And my my friend was staying with me. Um, she's homeless and or doesn't have any place to go because she's on the run from parole and all these things. And just certain things play a part with your friendships. But all the people that were, the two people that were a part of my life who... I want to give back too, mm-hmm. because I know that I, I wanted people to be there for me when, um, in the situation that I was. So I'm trying to be that for those people. Yeah. And I seen that those people weren't giving nothing back to me and weren't trying to help me maintain what I already had mm-hmm. and would judge me for not understanding them or not doing for them more than I was already doing. So I was stuck for a while. I was like, am I wrong? Am I not doing enough? But I'm doing enough. Like, I was just kind of like, I know that I'm not in the wrong. I know that my law of attraction is not going to fail me. And I know that all I have been doing is giving my last, giving my last, giving my last, and making sure that I maintain what I have so that I can keep, keep giving and that I can keep growing myself. But I felt like all of that was, was one-sided. So I had to realized that that environment was toxic for me and that I couldn't help people more than they were helping themselves and that I wasn't responsible for them. Mm. So I had to come back down from the thing to the things that I that I knew going through my experiences. Ain't nobody responsible for you, so you're not responsible for nobody. Mm. And whatever you're doing is enough, knowing that 
in, you know, deep down inside, like, your intentions were good and that you would give him everything you can and that, you know, it was just not beneficial to you or the other person for you guys to stick together. So I had to make the decision and end that friendship in those terms. And it was just, it hurt me a lot because it's like, damn, that's a friendship that I really worked for. Um, but I know that the law of attraction was already meant for that to end. And I moved on. And the these, this like week and then couple of days has just been flourishing for me. I just keep seeing everything that I was already, that I already knew was going to happen that I just needed to close that chapter because it was done with. So there's certain things that I already know, you know, how to do about it, but because I want to be strong or I want to be, or I want to prove a point to myself, not to anybody else, that oh, I can't do this for somebody else. I can't be there for somebody else. I can't do it all. That type of mentality um, just kind of like shows you that you can't do it all, but you're not responsible for all. Yeah. And that when you need, you know, and self care is main priority, regardless if you're doing this, this, and this, and that, like your your sanity, your 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 peace of mind, and your self care is the main priority thing because you're only responsible for yourself. Mm-hmm. And then once you're taking care of yourself, then you take care of your responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And and that's how I just go about life, you know. Sometimes you get sidetracked. Some things, sometimes, you know, like the, the spirituality says, you know, the devil likes coming into your home or likes disturbing, you know, all the things that are going. But when the devil is trying to disturb whatever he's trying to disturb, that means that that's only showing you that you have something going, mm-hmm. that that things are about to flourish because you just had this hard barrier or this hard breakthrough so i wouldn't i don't i don't call it the devil myself because i don't i don't i don't speak i don't i don't my my spirituality is not a god and it's not a it's not an angel it's it's just like my my energy Mm -hmm. just how i live just how i let things how i reflect things or how i let things internalize into my body that's my strategy that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit all over the place, but it's, <laughs> it's that's how it's how that's how it is in my in my my brain though. But it, it it works, and I and I often tell people find what works for you, find your balance, because your balance is not going to be my balance, and it's not going to be a balance that you've seen or that or someone is going to show you. People can give you an examples of 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 coping mechanisms or balances of, of and how to balance life, but those are only examples. You're gonna have to find your own model. And even if you're using somebody else's example, it still has to be molded into your own way of balancing it because it's totally different. Yeah. And this is how I found my peace of mind. This is how I found, you know, that I'm going to keep growing as a person and as a professional. And this is how I know that I'm going to make it to the next day and I'm going to keep growing Why make it to the next day, mm-hmm. which is my goal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say? Or anything mm. we might have missed? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, other than then, um, everything I said, I just want people to know that I am, I don't know, I feel, I feel like um, my bio says that I'm a natural born leader. Mm. And natural born leader driven to make a change in the world. And I do believe that. I do believe that somehow, some way that I'm going to create a change for the world. Not only for my community, not only for 
my generation, but just for the world and, and it's in itself. And I feel like everybody in the world should feel like that, that they are driven to make a change in the world and to add something to the world. Um, and even if you can add nothing to the world, at least don't take anything away from it, but just contribute to what other what other folks are are working towards, which is, you know, showing showing that the world, that our country, that our communities do have some type of humanity and that we are our, our brothers and sisters keepers, you know, that we take care of one each other, that humans won't be able to survive without other, other, without other humans and that, yeah, we need to be there for each other. You know, times is hard. And like I said, everybody's going through their own individual crisis and the fight for our community is... It's a crisis, mm-hmm. and that uh, our community cannot do it alone. And this is why I fight so hard to try to uh, show people a different way of, you know, changing minds and souls. Just mm-hmm. tell your story, speak from the heart, speak from experience, and you don't necessarily have to share every single detail, but be as open as possible and try to paint a picture that people would never, never, never see. Because they don't live it. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for inviting <laughs> me and having um and giving me this opportunity and this platform. Yeah, absolutely.